Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I am so happy to be back with all of you. After a month of traveling and a couple of weeks of vacation, I haven't uh, been in a place where I could actually tape the podcast, and Sally and Ian have really filled in for me, which I appreciate, And but I'm really happy to be back. It's fall, uh, back to school for everybody, and for seniors in particular, these are your last few months of your college process before you actually choose your school and switch over from moving in uh, rather than worrying too much about getting in. So congrats to you on getting this far and good luck for the next couple of months. Uh, In fact, a lot of uh, the focus of our shows moving forward will be on things that are going to be directly relevant to you. Uh, And today we're talking about FERPA. And if you're wondering what that is, well, we'll learn more. And also um, completing the activities section of the common application. So for those of you working on your applications, we have some uh, tips and thoughts for you on that section. But before we do that, um, one of the things that you will see offered at a number of institutions, but particularly at the more selective schools, uh, especially, for example, the Ivies, um, are alumni interviews that happen after you submit your application. And I'm really excited to welcome uh, an alumni interviewer with a highly selective school. We are going to be talking about alumni interviews in general. So where she interviews is less relevant to the information she has to share with us. Um, And joining us today is Lydia Schultz. Welcome, Lydia. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. And just for our listeners' sake, I want to share that. Lydia had reached out. She listens to the show and had some thoughts about... Um, the whole alumni interview piece, and I thought they were really insightful and invited her to come on the show, and she's here today. I actually was also an alumni interviewer way back when. I don't do that work anymore um, just because it feels like a little bit of a conflict of interest. Um, but Lydia, so we have you have a lot of great tips to share. Um, I wanted to start with a little bit of the nuts and bolts because I do think often um, how the whole process works is a real mystery to students and parents. Um, so, for example, they think that sometimes interviewers may have read their applications, um, and of course, that's not true. So, can we start with some basics around um, the process? How interviews are assigned? You know, how is it that you come to be reaching out to a couple of students to interview? Right. Great. Good place to start. So, from my experience, the interviews are assigned by location. Uh, For example, I interview students who live in my same county, but not in my same town to avoid conflicts of interest. I think the colleges don't want interviewers to find themselves in the awkward position of interviewing your neighbor or your kid's best friends. Uh, So they want to keep it uh, close to where the student lives to make it convenient, but they don't want it too close so that it provides conflicts of interest. Got it. And so, I, and I think that's really great, actually. And I know that when I was an admissions officer at Penn, one of the things that we requested is that interviewers not interview students that they know because of that exact concern around um, conflicts of interest. Okay, so then 
let's talk about timing. I mentioned that these interviews typically happen after you submit your application. So what does that mean for interviewers in terms of the timing that they have to get these interviews done? Right. So, yes, alumni interviews are typically scheduled a few weeks after the application deadline, and this is a tough time because most students have just finished applications and would like nothing more than to relax and watch TV and sleep, but no, it's actually time to start preparing for interviews and and watching for emails from interviewers. And this is a particularly tough time, I think, for the January deadline because oftentimes those interview requests are going to come in right in the middle of midterms, or at least that was the case for many of the students that um, that I've interviewed. And then in terms of, of what time of day, this also might be of interest, um, the, the interviewers are going to reach out with uh, suggestions of afternoons, evenings, and weekends. And we try, and the schools really push us to work with the students to find times that work well for the students and their families. Got it. And you had some really good tips for how do you work with an alumni interviewer to set up your interview? And um, I thought there was some great advice here. So hoping you could take us through your best tips for setting up the interview. Sure, I would be happy to. So the the first outreach from the alumni interviewer is probably going to be via email. Oftentimes the schools will will you know give you some formats of how you can reach out, and email is probably the easiest approach. So you, that's how the first initial contact is likely going to come. Um, and so my advice is respond right away, uh, even if you don't know for sure whether or not you can make the date and the time suggested. And the reason this is important is because interviewers are scheduling with multiple kids and we we don't want to have to follow up. But we worry if we don't get a response. We think maybe the email address is wrong or, you know, maybe we typed it wrong. And so um, so it's perfectly fine to respond right away and say, I'm checking the dates with my family and I will I will let you know. But, you know, just a got it, you know, tells us that, that we can move on and start scheduling. Um, Another thing that I think is is important is, and I think probably a lot of students feel uncomfortable with this, but but feel free. The students should feel free to ask for alternate dates and locations. So the alumni interviewers will typically send out maybe two or three potential dates and locations, and I think a lot of the students I've reached out to feel that they absolutely have to respond to one of those, but, but you know, since the schools are pushing us to, um, to really make sure that it works well, it's absolutely fine if a student responds and says, I have an AP physics midterm tomorrow, or um, both my parents work and I can't drive, and they can't drive me, or I have an away game. All of these, uh, you know, answers are perfectly fine, um, so you should feel free to ask for what works best for you. And and then also, if you can't get there in person, you can always offer to connect virtually. So suggest, you know, I'm sorry, I can't make those times, but could we FaceTime, Skype, WhatsApp, even phone, you know, whatever. Um, anything is fine, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a good gesture to make sure that you find a time um, and then be appreciative of the interviewer's flexibility. Another tip I would offer is around communication. So this is a hot point for me because mm-hmm. I've been on the receiving end of some some communications that were not perfect, I would say. So just keep in mind that every interaction is, is in my opinion, on the record. So you want to think about your greeting, 
you know, maybe defaulting to Mr. or Ms. might be more appropriate than, you know, hey, Bob, um, be enthusiastic, no typos, and, and use good grammar. Um, so those are just a couple of thoughts that I had about how to, you know, go about the process of setting up the interview. A great advice, and certainly my colleagues and I have been on the receiving end of some less than perfect email communications with students, and it's a really good reminder that while you might be used to dashing off text to friends uh, and not really worrying about it too much, this is a formal arrangement. This is a formal setting, and this is the time to put your best foot forward and proofread before you press submit, and don't be overly informal, um, which I think is a really great point. How would you suggest students prepare for an interview? Um, You know, we work with students and talk to them about the kinds of questions that they might be asked and the kinds of questions we're encouraging them to ask and how to think about their answers. But, um, you know, I would love to get, as someone who is out there interviewing students, I'd love to get your thoughts on the things you hope that students are doing to prepare. Sure. I'm going to start with the sort of logistics of preparation uh, and then get into some of the some of the content because I think the logistics are surprisingly important and kind of unique to the alumni interview experience. And what I mean is be prepared to interview in a location that has distractions. So the interviews t- for alumni interviews typically take place in a public space. That's what they ask us to do. So a restaurant or a coffee shop. And in this kind of setting, lots of things can go wrong. So you need to be ready for, you know, waiter interruptions, a mixed up drink order. One time, um, the restaurant actually turned out the lights in the area where we were sitting. So, you know, it's, things don't necessarily go smoothly. So you just need to roll with, with whatever happens. Um, if you're in a setting where you're ordering food or drinks, you know, think about what you can order and eat, you know, easily while you are talking. You know, this is probably not the time to try the sloppy joe sandwich, even if it, you know, looks really good on the menu. So, eat, you know, order something that you can eat with a fork or, you know, drink with a straw, and, and that'll just make the whole process easier. You also want to make sure you arrive early because even though this is in a location that's close to you, you may not be familiar with it. So you need to find the time to, uh, you know, to park and find, you know, the right location of the restaurant, which is on the second floor of the hotel lobby. So give yourself time and make sure you, you know, you you get there. Um, And then you want to think about, um, you know, having to make small talk, right? So a lot of people prepare their, you know, these interviews and, you know, and then there's there's a part of the interview where you're waiting for your food to come or to get a table and, and so you need to be able to just sort of make chit-chat. So, um, you know, just be ready for, um, you know, for that kind of moment where you, you know, want to wanna make some, some, uh, some small talk that, that doesn't uh, create awkward silences. Um, so getting into kind of the content of what, um, you know, to, to expect and what to communicate, I guess the, one, the most important thing I would say is there are just no right or wrong answers. Um, they're, you know, the interviewers are not looking for anything, anything specific. They're looking for you to tell us about, you know, what you've learned or changed, you know, what your insights are about what you have experienced, and they want to see that you're passionate about something. They want to see that you're animated about the things that you've done and, and what you care about. So, you know, don't be so tense that, that you don't let that animation um, shine through. Um, also, I'd say to be um, very clear about 
that you've researched the school, and I know this has come up um, in other uh, episodes on this wonderful show. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, you do want to be sure that 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 point comes across that um, that you know something about the school more than what's on the on the website. Um, and yeah, as as Beth said a moment ago, you know, the alumni interviewers you know are not admissions officers. We don't see the application, so. All we know is your name and your high school and, and the, the college within the university you're applying to, maybe your major, um, but we don't have a lot of context. So, um, so just, just realize that as you're, as you're walking through your answers. Yeah, I, I think all really great advice and particularly you should be able to articulate a couple of specific reasons why you are applying to this college and um, I I cannot stress that enough and as you say we have mentioned that more than once on the show so hopefully people are listening Um, you had a really nice point about the kinds of questions that you would like students to answer it's a um, a pet peeve of mine when you ask a student when you're doing practice interviews do you have any questions for me? And they sort of say, "Mm, not really, or ask something like, well, what are your average SAT scores? And so would love for you to share your thoughts on the types of questions um, that tend to be best in this setting. Yes, I am happy to do that. That is also a pet peeve of mine. And I think think a lot of students don't realize that the point in the interview when the interviewer says, do you have any questions for me, is equally as important as the other part of the interview where they're, where they're answering questions because the whole point of that is for us to be able to see, can this, you know, can this student ask really interesting, informed, intelligent questions? So don't underestimate the value of this part of the interview. It's so important. Um, and what I would recommend thinking about is, what kinds of questions can an alumni answer? So we, myself included, have not been on campus for a while. So, um, so you know, I can't answer questions about the, the, you know, the new freshman dorm that went up last year because I haven't seen it. So think <laughs> about things that, that, you know, that, that alumni can answer. For example, you know, career services then and now. How did I get my job out of the school and has the career services office helped me throughout my career? Um, you know, why did I... I choose the school is also a, you know, a great question. And then, and then really diving into other specific things to alumni. So trying to get a gauge of how engaged the alumni are post-graduation is something that's, first of all, I think incredibly important for students to know. And it's certainly something that we can all speak to. We can talk about the reunions, the events, whether we sponsor uh, jobs for uh, for students from the school at our companies, these are definitely all things that, um, that we can answer, uh, which make for great questions in an interview. Yes, I'm always eager for students to ask opinion-based questions. That's, if you're an alumni interviewer, theoretically, you enjoy talking about your experience at your alma mater, and you probably wouldn't be interviewing students uh, if you didn't have fond memories of that time. And I do think that can be really insightful. And I love that question. Why did you choose to attend? I think it'd be really uh, helpful. So very quickly, as we come to the to the close, you had um, some tips about follow-up. My question for you before you offer the tips on follow-up is, what is, what do you do after the interview? What is your communication back to the school look like? Yeah. So in, in my experience, 
So we're asked to prepare a write-up, which is uh, a set of questions that, um, that, that cover our impressions of the student and a rating of, of how likely we are to, um, to recommend that that student attend the school. So it's a, it's a it's a pretty brief report, not pages, just a, you know, really sort of a couple sentences, um, and uh, and that just gives a high level impression of uh, of the interview. Got it. And then in terms and then in terms of of other follow ups, so these reports get submitted pretty quickly. So my strong recommendation is um, to get the thank you out quickly. Um, you know, get it out the next day if you can. And cover off on you know what you learned about the interview. Make sure you're expressing appreciation and enthusiasm. Is you know all all good. Um, a couple of, of notes about social media. One thing that I think is common really across a lot of schools is they don't want the alumni interviewers to be connecting on you know LinkedIn or Facebook or other social media uh, with the students um, during the process. So sometimes it may be your instinct to just reach right out and say, "Wow, I really want you as a connection," but hold off on that until after you get your decision back because in most cases your invitation will be declined. Um, also, the, the interviewers don't know the status of your application until you do, or at least that's been, been my experience. So, um, so make sure that, um, that you don't reach out and say, hey, have you heard any news? Did I get in? Because you will know before the, before the interviewer does. Great point. Lydia, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. All right. Uh, We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're talking about FERPA, so don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. 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 News.
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back. And my colleague, Alex Bickford, who is also a former financial aid officer at Southern New Hampshire University, is here, and he's here to talk to us about FERPA. Hi, Alex. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And we were joking between uh, segments that this might not be the sexiest topic we ever talk about on the show, but it doesn't mean it's not important. Um, so hopefully our listeners are still tuning in. Um, let's start with something really basic. My student got a notice about FERPA. What the heck is FERPA? <laughs> Yeah. So I think that's, generally speaking, parents usually learn about FERPA in one of two ways. Uh, either the student gets a notice uh, that they're covered by FERPA, uh, or the parent tries to access information about the student uh, and can't because the student is protected by FERPA. So FERPA is uh, the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act, uh, and it sticks with uh, really the family from when the student is even in grade school all the way through college. The difference is, is that in grade school, this act is meant to protect the parents, to give the parents access to information uh, that the school will hold on the student. Uh, what happens when the student reaches 18 and goes off to college is that that act now protects the student. So the student has access to their information, but also the right to privacy so no one else can access their information the school has. Got it. And, and I'm going to throw a little wrinkle in here because when you're completing your application, you are asked if you waive your FERPA rights to see your right. letters of recommendation. So you're not waiving your FERPA rights in their entirety. You are simply saying... I'm waiving the right to see my recommendation letter. And the reason that you want to waive your FERPA right in that one instance is because the colleges will see if you don't waive your rights and the presumably your recommendation writers might know that you haven't waived your rights. And therefore, the recommendation letter might not be as honest as it would be had you waived your rights. So in general, you want to waive your rights when you're asked that question as it relates to recommendation letters. And then the final thing on that is, even if you don't waive your rights, the only time you actually get to see your letters are if you uh, get accepted at that school and enroll at that school. So the only letters you would ever get to see would be the letters that were accepted by the school that you ultimately attended. So... Just throw that in there, nothing related to what you are talking about today, but I thought that was um, if, in case there was added confusion. All right. No, that's, Students that's, have an interesting, that's an interesting point. Yeah, well, and as you were talking about it, I'm thinking, boy, that's not what I know of FERPA. And clearly, you're just waving one little piece of it with that. Um, right. That's, right so, that's exactly it. 
So students have because there are ways to wave other pieces there, uh, Beth, and so so that that kind of leads on to the next thing is that oftentimes parents want access to to information uh, on right. that student, uh, and there is a kid, uh, opportunity to sign a consent form to waive that for specific individuals, uh, i.e., in this example, your parents. Uh, but there are also other ways for parents to access information. And it's really not information, but more billing. Uh, so there, there will be parent portals that parents can access at most schools so they can get billing information. You won't be able to see the students' grades in there or things like that unless they waive their FERPA rights uh, in that instance. Uh, but you can still access the billing information and so on. Right. I will tell a little story in that I, um, I realized that my parents would only see my grades if they were delivered to my home address. And before I left for college, my father said to me, you better at least get a 3.0 or you can come home and live at home and go to college because we were sacrificing a lot. They particularly were sacrificing a lot. I got very concerned at the end of my freshman year that those grades might not quite make it. So I went into the bursar's office and I changed the billing address to my um, address at school for the coming year. And uh, that uh, it, it sort of created a little bit more havoc. The, the, the bottom line was that my grades were fine. I did hit the mark that he had set for me. Um, but I do distinctly remember that. And there was really no other way for them to get the grades unless they were mailed to the house. And then if they were, there was no way for me to intercept them. So anyway. Right. Um, so, so really, it's, it's like hiding a report card on a Friday from your parents and, and hoping they don't ask about it till Monday, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly what I did. So anyway, it worked out okay. And let's hope my dad's not listening to the show, but um, it did work okay for, out okay for You haven't for told me that then. story yet? Um, so, so talk to us a little bit about the, the rights that parents have, you mentioned billing, right? Of course, um, because parents are generally responsible for paying. So how lovely they give you access to the billing information. Um, is there anything else they have access to if the student doesn't waive their rights? So, and that's a, that's a great question. I think one, one thing that we always get concerned about is if there's a, uh, like a divorced household situation or parents that aren't married, uh, situation here, uh, and access to financial data. Uh, and that's, that's one of the great things that FERPA is doing is protecting it in that situation where you don't want someone else to see your financial information. So when you are submitting information on the, whether it be the FAFSA form, uh, or the non-custodial parent form, uh, other parents, if there are other parents that are involved, don't have access to that information. Uh, so that that's covering covering you. The information that parents have access to, like you said, is that billing information, uh, and certainly in case of emergency information, if if the parent is listed there as a contact. Uh, otherwise, the student has to waive those rights to have parents have access to grades or access to disciplinary action or things like that on campus. Got it. So, moral of the story here is. If you have a great relationship with your child and feel comfortable they're going to share this information with you, maybe you're not going to push for them to waive their FERPA rights for other students. Maybe if you feel like you will never know otherwise, um, maybe that is a conversation to have in your house. Do you, and, and I, um, I don't know if you have a response to this, um, Alex, but any sense of whether or not it's common for students to waive their FERPA rights in this situation? 
it, it, normally it is. Um, I think it's really common for, that, for students to wait there for a while. To be, to be quite honest, because the parents ask them to oftentimes, and the student doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> to be quite <laughs> honest, but the student the student probably isn't aware that hey, listen, mom and dad can't get grades unless I waive these rights. Uh, and so, oftentimes, in, in Quite honestly, they're usually waving them in the beginning of the semester when things are all rosy and things look good. Uh, so they're saying, yeah, of course I'm going to waive my rights. Uh, and then they may regret that uh, later on if the situation, like you said, uh, comes up where you're getting close to the end of the semester and you might not quite make grades. Right, right, exactly. So, yeah, that's funny. Um, and I can, the counterpoint is in terms of students waiving their FERPA rights in, on their applications, um, what I can tell you there is that it is very common to waive your rights. And most yep. guidance counselors, school counselors, college counselors, people like me will say, you really, I would waive those rights because you're not really getting much with the rights and it is detrimental potentially to not waive the rights. So, um Excellent. Anything else that you want to add about FERPA, Alex? No, I think it's, uh, like you said, Beth, it's important to have a good open conversation with your students in the beginning, uh, ask them to share information, talk to them about decision-making and things that they should consult with you on and things that they can make decisions on their own. Uh, And then otherwise, make sure at least you have access to that parent portal. Uh, That's important. Uh, And hopefully um, access to more if that's appropriate in your family situation. All right. Excellent. Alex, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Beth. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to be talking about the activity section on the common application. And we have lots of uh, things for you to be thinking about as you uh, fill that out yourself. So don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes, Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, 
philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we are talking about the Common App Activities section, and I could not be more excited to welcome back to the show someone who has not been with us for a year and a half, maybe two years, been a little bit. She went off, did some other things, and has returned to the fold, and we're very excited to have her, and that is Karen Spencer. Hi, Karen. Hi, Beth. So nice to be back. Yay, great. Um, Karen I'm excited. is... We obviously we work together, but also she's a former admissions officer at Georgetown University and Franklin and Marshall. So um, she brings a lot of that perspective with her. And she and I have worked together for a number of years. And one of the things that we have worked on probably, I don't even want to think about how many times we've worked with students on the activity section of the Common App, but (laughs) let's just say it's been a lot. Um, so I think let's, why don't we start with some really basic stuff. So what is the activity list on the Common Application? So the Common App Common Apps Activities List is essentially like a, a, a made grid for the student that allows them to, to put up to 10 activities into specific slots um, based on category. There's like a little drop-down menu, and it'll say, you know, athletics or music or other or whatever, and then you, you get to pick what you want. So if you're on the tennis team that goes, you know, in a certain category or a debate team or you have a job or you have a, you're in a play or whatever the case may be, um, and this is an opportunity for you to kind of demonstrate what you have done in high school. I think one of the things that is really helpful for admissions officers that's also on the Common App where it will ask you how many years you did it, how many weeks a year, and how many hours a week. And this is really helpful to admissions officers because this allows us to get a sense for what kind of involvement this activity required, right? Was this a huge time commitment? Was this kind of a one-off that it was, you know, one day but it was all day? Um, Is it something you've been doing consistently throughout high school? So a lot of these allow um, for you to um, really kind of show the breadth of what you've done since ninth grade and kind of what the volume of that work essentially was. Um, it also allows for a very brief description of, um, of what you've done. So, you know, again, sometimes that's required and sometimes that's probably not super necessary. I mean, if you've been on the tennis team, right, I get what that means. I don't need you to describe um, what the tennis team is. But if you've been in the UAMYC club where I'm like, huh, 
What's that, right? This is, there's an opportunity for that. So um, the description note is very brief. I can't even remember how many characters at the moment it is, but it is like a one-liner at best. Um, so this is, this is um, a good place where uh, learning to be brief um, will serve you well. Yeah, I think it's 150 characters, which, by the way, is 150 characters, including spaces, not words. So that means that every letter is a character, right? You only get 150 of them. So you are right. right very brief. One thing that I am consistently shocked by, and I don't know why, but I, I really just basically need to remind myself that, yes, I've been doing this for years, but that every student, this is the first time they're filling this out is when students ask me stuff like, well, what goes on that list? The things I do outside of the classroom in school, right? And then they, they don't think about the thing, other things. So you mentioned um, a lot of different topics that could be related to extracurricular activities. Any particular advice about other types of things that you might record on this list? So, yeah, I think that's a good point. People will forget, like, oh, yeah, I've been doing Taekwondo for 20 hours a week since I was in the first grade. Can that go on there? And you're like, uh, yeah, like, of course this goes on there. So I think sometimes right. kids forget, like, things outside of school. And for a lot of kids, that is actually more of what they do. It does happen outside of the, the school setting, right? They do Taekwondo or they play piano or private violin lessons or they're ice skaters or whatever the case may be. So anything counts generally since the ninth grade. So that's the first thing I say. Like, I love that you, you know, went to space camp in the sixth grade, but to be clear, I don't care, right? So unless it's happened since ninth grade or it's been something that has been happening consistently since the first grade, again, going back to, let's say, Taekwondo, right? If you've been doing Taekwondo since the first grade and you are still doing it all the way through 12, then you can mention that you've been doing this in that kind of context for this long just to show, you know, how long you've been doing it. But I don't need to know what you did in the sixth, seventh, or eighth grade, for example. Um, right. But yes, anything that goes down, if you sing in the choir at church or at temple, um, you babysit, again, anything really that's outside of the classroom counts. Um, and so that I, I want to kind of re- remind people that sometimes, and, you know, I, I encourage students to ask their parents, um, because parents have a fantastic way of remembering things that students somehow miraculously forget when they get to this section. You know, they'll be like, remember how you spent three weeks on that, you know, European trip for choir tour, and they're like, oh, yeah, I forgot. (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah, you could put that down. Um, So, you know, sometimes parents are really good about, you know, helping them remember some of the things that they have kind of forgotten they do, or it's just so part of their daily schedule. I think if they almost sometimes don't think about it. But, yes, anything essentially counts. And um, here's a tip for those who are listening who are not seniors and filling out applications and to the parents who are listening. This is a great, you can do this with your child where you keep a running list of the things you're involved in, the student is involved in as they go through high school so that you don't forget about that charity run that they did freshman year, which my son may or may not have done, or um, some other activity that they were involved in. And not all of those may own ultimately make this list. But if you keep a running list, then you'll feel confident that you'll have everything that could possibly be relevant in one place and um, and then look through it at that point to decide what makes the cut. Um, big question here, another area where, especially when I was in admissions, I saw students making a lot of mistakes around this. And that is, does it matter what order you put things in? Can you just put it in the order it occurs to you? Or should you be more purposeful than that? Yeah, I think purposeful is a good word here. So, yes, you want to be – and this is a good place where I like to remind parents and students 
that in generally experience, and again, Beth, feel free to say in your experience was different, but I think we've mm-hmm. discussed this and I don't think it is. Um, most admissions officers spend maybe six or seven minutes total with a file, right? The entire file, right? So I remember when I was at Georgetown, I had six minutes. When I worked at Franklin and Marshall, I had seven. To get, get 15, a folder, if I was going to get through. You had 15? So I had 15. I usually spent 15 minutes with a file. But I think the point is oh, a good one. You're so much You're not got a lot of time. Yeah. Right, I'm not loitering with your kid's application. Let's put it that way, right? right? Like, we've got a lot to get through. And even in 15 minutes, right? Like, I have to get through, you know, potentially two, three essays. We've got to get through two, three letters of recommendation, right? I've got to get through the data. I've got to get through the SATs, the transcript, the, you know, again, the the extracurricular list. So this is a good place where be concise and be clear um, couldn't be more important. And, again, be purposeful, right? So most important to least important, right, on the list, mm-hmm. right? Just like think about yep. any other list that's the most important, right? You want to put the most important thing at the top or the most relevant, most time-consuming, most, you know, most, the most, whatever, right? Whatever thing is the most to you, right, um, in whatever category you want, right? So if you, uh, you know, I always joke, the National Honor Society probably should not go first, right, unless your National Honor Society is unlike every other National Honor Society in the history of the world that actually, you know, is robust and does, you know, 20 hours a week of something, right? Probably not, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. somebody can't go on there, but it probably shouldn't go towards the top. So think about those things that you spend, you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 hours a week um, or, you know, or, you know, for three months of the year doing. If, that, if there's an activity that falls in that kind of ballpark, right, that should probably go first, right? If you yep. are a state or national or local winner of something kind of large, right, um, probably should also go on there towards the top, right? So think most relevant, most recent, um, and most robust activities, essentially, from top and then work your way down. I don't know yep. if that's the same kind of advice you would generally give as well, but I'm sure it is. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. And I think the, the only other thing I might add is leadership, but I think that usually falls into one of those three categories you just mentioned. Um, if you have leadership in an activity, that should go close to the top uh, as well. And I think the point about how long you have with the files is a good one because the reason you want to lead with the highlights is because they may only look at the top few. They may not have time to go through the whole list. So um, those top few are the ones that are likely need to be the ones where you're the most impactful. If it's just something you did once as a ninth grader, now you've wasted that bit of attention you got. And they may not get down to item number 10, which is actually your big thing that you want them to know about, right? Lead with the headlight, you know, go with the most important stuff up front. Um, Yeah, don't bury the lead on this, correct. Exactly. Thank you. That's the phrase I was looking for. Um, One of the last quick thing would be I would group like items. So if you're really into soccer and you play for the varsity team and you're captain that team, but then you also play for a club team, that probably should be item number two. Um, So especially if it requires a lot of time and that way they can see the breadth of your commitment to this one area and not just the one primary thing. Um, Figuring out hours per week and weeks per year, I definitely see students struggle mightily (laughs) with this one. And one big thing is that you're not allowed to put a range. You can only have one number. Um, So even if you play a sport where you have meets every couple of weeks, you can't put that it's 10 10 to 20 hours a week. You need to, you know, sort of zero in on one specific number. So what's your advice on that part? 
So on that, I mean, some of these are easier than others, right? Something you did once, great. That's easier to explain. Um, to your point, there are things where, you know, maybe you had play practice every day for two hours, but then the week of or the two weekends you did the performance, right, you were there maybe 12 hours a day, right, mm-hmm. just getting the whole enchilada done. So, you know, I always say average it out. Um, yep. I think, okay, how many hours did I actually spend total, then divide that by how many days you were there, and then you can kind of average that out, right? I think you just want to be really thoughtful about, um, you don't want to under, you know, don't undersell yourself, right? If you did the hours, put the hours in. But I know that Beth and I and, and our team has on multiple occasions and in our time at admissions read, <laughs> you know, the activity <laughs> sessions where you're thinking, like, you start to do the math and you're like, does this person have more than 24 hours in their day? Because I'm pretty sure she doesn't. And there's no possible way you could do all of these activities for the amount of hours you said you did them and actually, like, go to school or, right. you know, go to sleep or have dinner right. or anything. So be thoughtful. Again, it's not to say don't downplay it. You know, be, be honest and be thoughtful about, okay, how many hours did I really do this? But make sure if you're an outside viewer, this actually makes sense, right? Um, you can't – I remember, you know, seeing one kid – who did, who did everything 52 weeks a year. Okay, really mm-hmm. unlikely, right? That's not true. Things are cyclical, right? You know, sports teams don't play 52 weeks a year, even if you play club. You had a few weeks off in there, I'm sure. Um, and then think about what, is this hour, what do these hours look like if you're an outside observer, right? This is actually as a good reflection of what I do. Again, it might not be a bad thing to have your parents be like, huh, does that look fair for what you think I participated in this in? Um, because, again, over-inflating your numbers will also not help you, right? Because now we're going to start the whole thing seems dubious, right? Now I'm going to start questioning all of these numbers because this seems so overinflated. Um, So again, be thoughtful, be honest. And, you know, if you need to average it out um, and, and think, okay, is that a good reflection of what I actually did? Right, right. And just in terms of what I generally suggest students, that the school year is generally around 36 weeks if you account for vacations. If it's something that you do every other week, well, then that's 18 weeks out of the year, um, things like that. So exactly that advice, um, looking at totals and then averaging out and, and thinking of it in that way. There are places for 10 activities. In your opinion, how important is it to have 10 things on that list? So I think that really depends on the applicant. Um, I think if you've got zero things to put down, that's a problem. I won't lie. We had that issue. I had just this issue the other day where I remember reading it once at Georgetown. I had a kid who was super, super bright. It was going to be an easy admit based on numbers, but had literally zero activities. And I even called yep. the guidance counselor because I thought, well, maybe he like meant to submit a resume and forgot. And so it's, it wasn't, uh, and it was, and she's like, nope, literally <laughs> does nothing. And I was like, wow. I mean, I can remember that. That's how much of an anomaly it was. But so, I mean, we do notice when it's not, there's not a whole lot there, um, right? You know, the idea here, frankly, is that an active and engaged high school student, we believe, is going to be an active and engaged college student, right? If yep. you did nothing yep. in high school or by and large nothing in high school except for play Xbox or sit on your phone or, you know, otherwise squander your day, right? I kind of assume you're going to do the same thing when you get to college because you've given me no reason to believe otherwise, Right? right. So the importance of the activities is to see what kind of active and engaged community member you're going to be. Now, that said, there are some activities that are more singular in nature, right? So people who are ice skaters, people who do equestrian um, stuff, you know, there are certain activities that are kind of all time consuming and they do do them kind of year round. It's like what they do, it's their thing and it's all consuming. Um, and that's okay. But I would say those, that's, that's more of an off, I would say for most people. Uh, it doesn't have to fill up all 10. I think the key thing is 
what are you doing throughout the year and what kind of free time do you have and what are you doing outside, you know, to contribute to your community, your school, whatever. You know, I always say in terms of of the school year, I kind of look at it in seasons, right? So what are you doing in the fall season, right? What are you doing right. in the winter season? What are you doing in the spring season? I look, you know, again, I, I think of it kind of that's how athletics is usually organized, but that could be really anything, right? If you're playing fall football, what are you doing then in the winter? Right? Yep. If you're doing a winter play, what are you doing in the spring, right? Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and the more selective a college you're looking at, the more those three seasons, and even to the summer to some degree, need to be filled with something significant. Now, mm-hmm. what that is is less important to some degree, right? Whether you're an athlete, a musician, you work, you do whatever, right? That, that's, that's a little bit, that's better, that's fine, that, that there's no right activity necessarily. Um, but the more selective it gets, the good rule, the more selective it is, the more that, that activities list needs to look robust. The less selective we get, the less important that tends to be. Right. I, yeah. And I think that's a really key differentiator. But if you're applying to schools that are getting more and more selective, so they're admitting less than 25% of their applicant pool um, or less than that, in my mind, that increases the importance of having at least 10 things to put down. I have had I have sent students who maybe had eight things to their parents and said, I'm sure you have one or two one-off things that you could add here. Why don't you ask your parents if there's anything? And sure enough, it'll, you know, oh, remember that one time you went and you um, volunteered at the church for a Sunday afternoon during the holidays and delivered meals? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that Um, because they literally only did it once. Um, That's the kind of activity that can go at the very bottom of an application. It feels a little bit like filler. It is a little bit like filler, but there is a nice element to not seeing blank spaces, but very important to note that this is really more important the more selective you get where what you're doing outside of the classroom is impacting your chances of being admitted in a much more um, specific way than at schools where it's largely based on your grades and your test scores and the rigor of your curriculum. Uh, What if you have more than 10? What do you do then? So there is an additional information section at the end of the Common App, um, and I think this can be a blessing and a curse for some students. Um, I think really if you're that student who really has 12 or 13 kind of significant activities and it's important that number two or, you know, the last two and three additional ones get put down there, or maybe the description needs to be a little longer, right? Maybe you won some big award, but it's not clear in that 150 characters or even the title what in the world that is. Right. I have a student mm-hmm. who did this massive project with the Department of Public Works in Philadelphia, and it simply does not fit in this little tiny line. Right. Like it, mm-hmm. it is a big program it was a massive undertaking. Um, this is the kind of thing that the additional information section is meant for, frankly. Right. Either the things that didn't fit or things that truly require more description than the spacing allows. Now, the flip side of this is people see that blank page and they're like, oh, well, I can list every, right? I can write a novella on, you know, on this activity, right? Because now I got all this space, right? No, again, brevity is key here, right? I'm, 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 I'm really scanning quickly. So make it concise, make it clear. But it is a great section for those students who have truly more activities than will fit or have an activity that needs a longer description than they are allowed. 
Right. And and I would say that that example I gave as, you know, hey, this is one last thing you can put down so there are no blank spaces is not something that I would necessarily put in the additional information section. That was a one-off thing. Correct. It's not particularly relevant. Um, it clearly wasn't important to you because you never did it again and you forgot about it. That's not the kind <laughs> of thing that goes, right, in the additional information section. Correct. Um, Correct. So speaking of the additional information section, we have another minute or so. Um, what if you have nothing? You filled out, you had 10 things or a few fewer than 10 things. Nothing needs a longer explanation. Um, you are nervous about leaving that section blank. Should you be worried about leaving it blank? No, I mean, I think you can't create things that don't exist, right? <laughs> yep. I, you know, I think that if you didn't do it, you didn't do it, right? Yep. And And sometimes I think... Um, it, it, they're blank because the other things are so robust and you really just dedicated your time to those things, in which if that's the case, then be proud of the things you dedicated your time to. If you think, huh, that looks a little barren, perhaps I could have done more with your time, that kind of sucks, but at this point, we're out of time, right? If you're about to submit that thing, there's nothing more to fill that with at this point probably, right? Depends on, you know, right. when you're filling it out, I suppose. But at that point, right, sometimes that can be a rude awakening, which actually is actually sometimes a good, I like to show this to kids who are kind of, weaker in the extracurricular department and like maybe the beginning of junior year and say, look, you're going to have to fill this section out in a little over a year's time. What do you have right. to put there? And that, and the, that exercise of having to be like, huh, I have two things to put here. And now seeing it like in front of them on paper, sometimes puts the light bulb moment on for them. Like, Oh, you're right. Okay. I need to get busy because there are going to be half kids who do have 10 things here and right. I need to get going. So again, it depends on why those things are blank. There's good reasons and bad reasons for those to be blank. But again, if your kid is in that sub, you know, that on that latter category of, well, I don't really feel like doing anything. This can be a great exercise for them. Right. Right. And then for, for our listeners, the additional uh, information section can absolutely be left blank. Even for the most selective levels, if you don't have anything additional to share, at all, nothing to explain, um, nothing to give a little bit more in, in information about, please leave that section blank. Please don't com- fill it with something just to put something there. So please leave that blank. Karen, thank you so much for joining today. Uh, really great information that you've shared. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you to Karen, all my guests. Next week, Ian is hosting, and they are going to be talking about completing the FAFSA, recommendation letters, and supplemental essays for Haverford and Swarthmore Colleges. If you have questions, send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. I'm also newly on Instagram, um, and so is College Coach. So follow me, at ElizabethHeaton92, um, or follow College Coach at College Coach. BH or follow both of us. Why not? Um, you can also find us on iTunes if you want to subscribe and maybe give us a rating. Um, in, we're in the kids and family section um, under the subhead education for kids. And we're also in the education uh, section under how to, the subhead how to. Um, and we have great archives. And we also have a wonderful blog um, that you might want to sign up for, blog.getintocollege.com. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.